this is the first time I've had the privilege of being, being here. I've, I've, in a sense, known you from afar uh, because of relationship with Tom's brother, John, Bill, and certainly with Tom and Melissa through the years. And it is a deep honor to be here. I, it is also a deep honor to be a part of the Awakening Project. And uh, I want to thank, even though Dr. David Thomas had to leave because he's caring for a family member, we want to just take a moment to say a word of honor for his leadership for such a time as this in our nation and in our world, as well as um, other leaders that are coordinating and helping make this happen. Uh, Dr. Jessica, Jessica Avery as well. Um, we thank you for your leadership. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment, and perhaps this happens a lot here in the Riverstone family, but um, I have favorite pastors around the nation, and Tom Tanner is one of them. And I, yeah, don't hold back. But I deeply celebrate, admire, and treasure the deposit that Jesus has placed in Tom and Melissa Tanner and the legacy. They're not done. You're not dead. You're not done, right? They're not done. But I am thankful, uh, just as I know you are as well. If you have a Bible with you, may I invite you to open it to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read in a moment verses 40 through 56. We're going to concentrate on uh, the story of the woman who touched Jesus, the hem of his garment. Uh, but I want you to notice what's happening around the story. And that's why we're reading uh, the sandwich portions, if you will, um, uh, as we read in just a moment. Now, now before we read, I, I want to validate something. It's, it's one thing to read stories like this in Scripture. It's another thing when you've experienced things like this in Scripture. I remember a group of college students gathered around me a number of years ago when I was very ill. I won't go into the detail of that season in life. And one of them said, Paul, I believe God is going to heal you. And that stretched me. I, I was a relatively new Christian at the time. And I remember these college students gathering around me, laying hands on me, and inviting me to enter into a spirit of worship. And then when I began to worship Jesus, and they began to intercede for me, the presence of the Lord came. And I, I, I literally, my body, I felt uh, his presence, his healing touch. I, I, and in those moments, those few brief moments, I, I, I recognize that not only does God save, not only does God cause a man or a woman to be born again, but he's still in the healing business. And my wife and I will refer to this in, in just a little while. We spend a lot of times in different contexts around the world. And, and you know, when you've walked with Jesus for a number of years, you begin to see the Lord do things that begin to align with the kind of the, the passage that we read this morning. And what I want to validate is that it causes you to read the scriptures differently. They're, they're not just, not just ink on a page. It's, it's not like, okay, that's just back then. And I, I, I just want to invite you in to hearing the word of God with, with an open lens. You know, we were singing some songs, worshiping about the reality of an open heaven over this place and over this time. So, Lord, let it be so, oh God. So, hear the word. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had not, for he had only, or excuse me, for he had an only 
only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you. They're they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, hey, look, someone touched me. That hey, look's not in the text, but I just threw that in. Someone touched me for I perceive the power, that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you go, made you well, go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe for she will be well. And, and he came to the house and he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping, mourning for her. And he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called out saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So I'm going to ask, I know we've prayed, but let's take a moment and just, let's just pray into this for just a moment. Now, God, um, It's one thing for me to pray, oh Lord, anoint me for such a time as this. But God, I don't pray merely that you would anoint me. I pray anoint us all, oh God. Anoint our hearts. Lord, let the oil of the Holy Spirit just cover us in a way that there's an awakening power resonating within us, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, as we worship you in this way now, that God, we're being encountered by you. We're, we're experiencing the beauty of the different rubrics of Jesus and all your glory and your radiance in this way as we share in these emerging moments. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife, Missy, and I, we have, we have four kids. And it's three sons and a daughter. And a number of years ago, I was taking my three sons duck hunting. And I sent my youngest son, Stuart, to go get a knife that I, we needed for the trip. And I said, hey, it's in this particular drawer. He, he went and he took off. And I noticed he was taking a while. And then I, I heard in the other room, I heard him going, man. Wow. Whoa. And I'm like, what is going on? He, came, he comes walking in the den carrying this box. And he opens it. He says, Dad. And he had found all my concert tickets from, from my teen and college years. And he's going, Dad, are you kidding me? Kansas three times, uh, Chicago, Doobie Brothers, Aerosmith, Boston, okay, real eclectic taste in music. He inherited that and just going off and off. And he goes, kiss three times? Really, dad? I mean, just going through all this. And then he got real quiet. I could tell he was thinking and he set the box down and he goes, you know, dad, This explains a lot. (laughs) 
You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but because I, I do enjoy classic rock, and I hope that's not heresy for me to say from this pulpit, <laughs> but because I, there's some classic rock, rock songs that will preach. Do you, do you know that? I mean, think about Journey's song. Someday love will find you and break those chains that bind you. You Man, man you put that in a Christian lens, that will preach. By the way, I know, I know there are some church planters here, and if you're planning on naming your new church Journey Church, your closing hymn every Sunday has to be Don't Stop Believing, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, okay? Or, or think about Bob Seger. I know it's late. I know you're weary. I know your plans don't include me. Please don't finish the line. We don't need to go there. But sometimes that can be how we look at God. And when we open a story like this, it's very clear that the plan of Jesus was to include this woman who is desiring to be near him. And so many of you, I'm aware this is a very familiar story to most of us in the room, but there's some basics we need to cover, even though they are familiar to you, in order that we may properly contextualize what it is that Jesus may wish to speak to us through this story today. And so in your familiarity, you know that she is navigating a continuous flow of blood. And many people, scholars, believe that she is suffering from what would be called in modern terms, abnormal uterine bleeding. In fact, doctors call it AUB. And this had a lot of implications for her. She's, she's suffering physically. We, we get that. She, she spent all her money on physicians that have not been able to cure her. She's also suffering spiritually because of her condition. She would be considered ceremonially unclean. And in the law of Moses, a, a woman who is on her monthly period, is considered ceremonially unclean. In fact, Leviticus 15, 19 tells us that anyone who touches her is also unclean until evening. And this means that this dear one cannot participate in community life and worship around the temple. She's ostracized. Her medical condition has brought her into a place of isolation, spiritually isolation, emotionally, while at the same time, she is suffering physically. Now think about this for a moment. 12 years. Now, if you'll allow me, let's reminisce for a moment, but let's reminisce in the scripture. There are other places in the word where we see where people suffer for a long time like this. You think about in Luke 13, when Jesus stepped out of the synagogue, there's a woman there who has suffered. She's been crippled for 18 years. Or Jesus at the pool of Siloam in John 5, when the man who is suffering from infirmity there has suffered for 38 years. Now, here's what I want to invite you to consider. When you deal with a prolonged condition, there are special vulnerabilities that a man or a woman navigates. Your condition can blind you. You can come to a place where you are so conditioned by your condition that you now believe that there is no hope for any other condition. 
This is how it is. This is the card I've been dealt. This is how it's going to be. You can be groomed by your condition. It can groom you. There's a lid on my life. You hear scriptures like, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and, and not grow weary, walk and not faint. And, and, and when you hear that, it's like, that's, that's, listen, there's a lid on my life. I will never soar like an eagle. I'll never have a vibrant, alive spiritual life like that. Your condition can also feed you a thousand lies. I'm inferior to others. I'm not like other people. I don't measure up. I don't deserve anything better. I'll never know what it's like to be spiritually alive like that. And so the doctors couldn't help her. We know from the story that there's a sense in which they had impoverished her, not uh, that they were greedy. That's not what we're implying here. But none of their cures and all that she had spent her money on, and none of it helped her. It just drained everything that she had. And so putting all her faith in Jesus, and you know the apex of the story, she gropes for his garment. And in that moment, you may remember Jesus' words uh, when the disciples began recognizing something's going down here. And Jesus says, I perceive that power has flown from me. And in that moment, in Jesus demonstrating his power, we become aware of what can happen in the presence of Jesus. We're aware there's a physical restoration. There's a spiritual restoration. We want to make much of that, okay? But that's not where we're going right now, but I don't want to minimize that. But what I do want to draw us our, our attention to for a moment is this. I want you to note her desperation. Let me define that word. Desperation is the feeling you have when you are in such a bad situation that you'll try anything to change it. Desperation, however, can take people to dark places. It, I mean, after she, she had spent all her money. But desperation is why people rob banks. Desperation is why people at times will attack one another. But desperation can also bear great fruit when channeled in the right direction. And let us take note that this dear woman has a great gift operating in her life. And let's name it together. It's the gift of desperation. The Bible tells us in Mark 5 that when that she came when she heard about Jesus, that she connected the dots of his reality with her reality. And she began to move toward him. And she had obstacles to deal with. Her very presence in a large crowd would be frowned upon in society because she's considered unclean. Her normal existence would often be spent watching people skirt around her in order to avoid the possibility of contact. No brushing or touching or sharing friendly gestures on the path. She lived in isolation and would have been known for her uncleanliness. But you see, here's the deal. Things always begin to change when a man or woman begins moving toward Jesus in desperation. Let's pause. Is that preacher talk? Is that just something somebody says? Because you know what, that, that sounds right. But listen, let me, let me just, again, let's hear this with, if we can, fresh ears. Draw near to the Lord and he, finish it, 
will draw near to you. What did Jesus say in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed, there's a blessing upon those who hunger. They thirst for righteousness. Jesus says, look, there's a a blessing on this life. So God can't deny himself. And things always begin to change when we move toward Jesus in desperation. Things begin to change when you decide. Things begin to change when, when you change your mind. Things begin to change when you change direction. I, I probably, I heard a pastor once, you probably never heard of him, I think it's Tom Tanner, said, changing directions changes you. I know you took that down. You wrote that down weeks ago. I know you did. All of you did. So I'm just, but you see, note this church, her circumstances didn't begin to change merely when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Her circumstances began to change when she had the seed thought of I'm going to move toward Jesus. Now let me, let me, listen, all of us are in one of three conditions this morning. That is, we are either moving toward Jesus, indifferent to Jesus, or in rebellion from Jesus. Rebellion, indifference, or I'm moving toward him. And really, only one is the healthy option. And when you change direction, and it is toward the person of Jesus, things begin to change. Now, loved ones, I think there's something else we need to note here. Her issue, her, her struggle, it's personal. It's very personal. And I think we need to pause here and to recognize that our God cares like that. He cares about the betrayal. the divorce, the abortion, the child trauma, the childhood trauma, the bitterness, the wound, the broken relationship, the pornography. It's personal. He cares. And and I know this does sound like preacher talk, really, when I say this, but, you know, he, he is on a rescue mission. And a part of that rescue mission is he recognizes what sin does to people. You see, see sin tutors you. Sin tutors you in fear and shame. And the rescue mission of Jesus is that, that he knows we're not designed for sin, but, but he knows in order for you to flourish for his glory that this rescue mission has got to, got to bring you to a place where, where you get healed, you get delivered, you, get, you encounter him. Because you, I want to remind somebody in here, remember, he is your advocate, not your accuser. I've always, I've said to churches for years, you know how to tell the difference between the devil's voice and Jesus' voice? The devil's voice is always accusing you, telling you what you're not. And Jesus is advocating for you, trying to draw you in to who you really are that's rooted in whose you are in him. There's a big difference. The accuser seeks to blind you and to groom you and to feed you a thousand lives. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. And when I talk about this, I often cry. And if I begin to cry, I may or may not. I will get through it. Don't come rescue me. 
My earliest memories as a child were my mom and dad fighting at the top of their lungs into wee hours of the night, almost every night. And I remember the night when it came to a head and I could hear the clothes on the coat hanger being taken out of the closet and I heard my dad's leather suitcase pop open. I knew what was happening. I used to lay there at night and beg God to make it stop. And I heard the clothes being put in. I heard my mom just narrating, you know, the joy of his exit. And I heard uh, him walk down the hall. I heard him walk out the door. I heard my mom slam the door. I heard the sound of the lock, just like it was yesterday. I remember that night. And I remember my mother, who was prescribed Valium, by her obstetrician for clinical depression because it was a day before we understood clinical depression and there were no counselors that really, uh, that she got aligned with. That's a whole nother story that I don't have. This is not the right time to get into, but the effect of volume on her was she became lethargic and unfiltered, completely unfiltered. And I am an 11 year old boy who became her counselor. And my unfiltered mom, I would listen to her pour out her heart about her alcoholic father, whom her mother always reinforced with her left because she was born. I would listen to her pour out her heart over her alcoholic stepfather who never made it home with a paycheck and growing up poor in the projects. I would listen to her pour out her heart about the death of her baby brother. And I listened to her pour out her heart about details about the men who would come and go out of our house. An 11 year old boy has no categories for such things. I was an angry kid. Many of you who have a counseling background, you know that what happens when people pour their heart out, there's a transference. And I would take all this in and I would pick fights with my peers. This tooth right here is not real. And it's from a fist fight. I lost it in a fist fight. I was looking at your dog, Finley, your mascot, or I'm not sure what Finley is exactly, the dog here. But it was like a holy moment for me, and let me explain that. Because I had a dog as a little boy, and I would walk away from those times where mom would pour her heart out for hours, things I didn't, I just... And I would go to my little dog and he would just sit there and I would pour my heart out to that dog. He would listen. Just my way of coping with no father in the home and a mother who's detached. There were times when I I stole food from the grocery store to have food to eat for my brother and I. There were times when our clothes were not washed 
for weeks at a time. And I'll never forget the day in sixth grade at the height of junior high insecurity when two girls looked at me from 20 feet away and mocked me for how dirty my clothes were. Your condition can blind you. I'm not even aware that what I'm experiencing is abnormal because my abnormal is the only normal I know. Your condition can groom you. I'm not likable. My clothes are dirty. Therefore, I must be dirty. Your condition can feed you a thousand lies. I'm not like other people. I'll never know what it means to be carefree like another kid. And you see, when Jesus was healing this woman, he wasn't just healing her issue of blood. He was healing the brokenness of her soul. You ever notice what Jesus does in you? You're jealous for Jesus to do in others. Some of you know that place. There's a reason I read the broader context of this story to you just a moment ago. And that is, did you notice how this passage is framed? There's a 12-year-old girl who's dying, and yet Jesus, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. And then what he does is he turns around and raises this daughter of this ruler from the dead. And, and, and what, what's important for us to note who is around Jesus when all this is taking place? His followers, people like us, the 12 disciples. And what does Jesus do with the 12 disciples as they're experiencing this awakening about who he is and his radiance and his presence and his power to heal, not just physically, but to restore souls and restore life? What does Jesus do? What does Jesus, well, it, it, we read it, verses, verse, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. He, he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and to preach the gospel and healing everywhere. That's verse six. In fact, what's, what's interesting is that no less than, there's one reference to the gospel there and there's three references to healing. Isn't that fascinating? To cure diseases, heal, verse two. Heal, verse six. Huh. Yeah, write that down. Huh. <laughs> Missy and I, my wife, we spend a lot of time in different parts of the world and uh, primarily sharing the gospel of Jesus among unreached people groups. And, and one of our times in India, and this was about 11 or 12 years ago, uh, we had a leader there asked if he could do breakfast with us one morning, and we met with him. And some of you may remember an outbreak of violence in Orissa State, India, a number of years ago, Hindu militants, and they killed over 200 Christians. Well, when we sat, that kind of gives you some context, when we sat together, this leader said, uh, Paul, Missy, you're aware of what's happened. And then he began to explain that all of these martyrs had children. And he said, we have the children. Would you help us? And we looked at one another and said, well, of course we'll help you. And we got, we said, when we get back to Birmingham, we'll share this with the church family. Yes, we'll help you. I go to bed that night and 
I wake up about 4 a.m. I'm still a little jet lagged. I wake up at 4 a.m. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I tell you, loved ones, there are many times we pursue God and we experience his presence. There are these rare times when God just chooses to come to you. You're not, you're not you know, consciously pursuing. You just, just God just comes. And, and I sit up in bed and the Spirit of God comes. And, and, and these children of these martyrs come to mind. And I begin to weep for them hard. And I know that the weeping that's going on is weeping in the Holy Spirit, okay? I, I trust that some of you understand what I'm saying. Now, here's, here's the thing that what happened next just defies logic, and not that we're not defying a little logic right now, okay? But, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm weeping. Missy wakes up. I'm sitting in a chair next to the bed now. Missy wakes up and she begins to weep. And she comes around the bed and then sits in my lap and begins to heave in the same way I'm heaving. And the issue is, I know why she is crying. She knows why I am crying. And we haven't spoken a word. Something's happening that transcends both of us. So let me fast forward. I'm in Laos years later. And while I'm there, I find out that there were 600 children in a train car that were being taken illegally across a border who were going to be human trafficked in that region of the world. Something goes off inside of me. <laughs> and I now recognize that what God was speaking to us about orphans back here had something to do with this crisis that I'm seeing happen on our watch in the nation of Laos. And so that actually in our lives birthed several children's homes in the nation or northern Thailand that actually rescues children and teenagers out of human trafficking or uh, takes in children. There's about 160 of them who, who who would be vulnerable to being trafficked had they nowhere to go. Now listen, you may go, well, Pastor, you are on a rabbit trail. Bear with me. Because I want you to know that when I'm with a boy in Thailand who's in our homes, <laughs> I've got a lens where I look in his eyes and I go, you are not dirty. You are loved. Place, safe place where the gospel is being shared. These kids are being discipled. These kids are having the opportunity to get an education, go to college or trade school. I'm able to look into the eyes of a young woman and say, there will be no men coming and going in your life. You are valuable. I said, what's your point, Paul? My point is all that started with one touch. <laughs> all that began because I too touched the hem of his garment. That all began when my mom later remarried. And when she remarried, she married a multimillionaire who, uh, that, which, which was a fast forward lesson that money does not fix problems, church family. Let me just tell you that, okay? 
But, 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 but what happened is that, that in the years to come, as, as a young person in my early 20s, out of agnosticism and vague deism, I ended up coming to know Jesus Christ. Within months, I watched my mom come to know Jesus Christ. And as she grew in relationship with Christ, I watched her begin to flourish. She became the CFO of a fairly large company. She, she also bloomed and flourished as an influencer for the cause of Christ. And then I watched my 65-year-old, hill-charging, entrepreneur, governor-bribing, congressman-bribing, I'll leave names out, all right? I watched him come to know Jesus. Loved ones, what I'm saying to you is that when Jesus enters your world and you're watching people around you, your own life transform, and people around you get transformed, when Jesus shows up, man, that messes with you. And it being, and in it messing with you, you, you just cannot be indifferent to what's happening around you. And just as the disciples were raised up in, uh, by virtue of what they saw and experienced with Jesus, Blessed to be a blessing, as we often say. Everything changed, and not just for them, but for so many others. Jesus concludes this story with the words, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And we're aware that his rescue stopped the flow of blood, but it was his flow of blood that would provide for our rescue so that there would be power, that your condition would no longer blind you. Your condition can no longer groom you because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Your condition can no longer feed you a thousand lies. Now, loved ones, I want to affirm that let's be mindful when Jesus gives us stories like this, these stories are not here to entertain us. These stories are here to equip us. These stories are here to equip us to move toward Jesus. Not to be indifferent, certainly not to be in rebellion, but to move toward Jesus. So what I want to invite you to do this morning is move toward Jesus. And what we're going to do is symbolically this morning, this altar area, this, this is the hem of his garment this morning. I'm just, I want to invite you to come and, and in pursuit to just simply, Jesus, I'm in faith. I, I put my hand here and, and in putting my hand here, I'm, it is you that I'm touching. I want to encourage you that your first step in moving toward him is always surrender. Just to come with a surrendered heart, not rebellion, not indifference, but Jesus, I pursue you. And whatever, quote, the issue is, no matter how personal it is, Come in faith, believing you, Lord Jesus. Would you stand? Could we stand together? And let's pray for a moment. Hmm.